I mean, that psalm providentially uh, speaks to Israel's uh, desolation that uh, led them into uh, Babylonian uh, captivity. And this was when the northern tribes were taken into captivity in 722 B.C., which we'll talk about here in a, in a little bit after our prayer. But that, that psalm speaks uh, about Jerusalem when it was... Uh, taken over by the Assyrians and they were praying for God to uh, restore Israel to its former uh, posterity. With that being said, let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, first we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for this Lord's day. We thank you for the people who are gathered here this morning to uh, worship uh, with us. Father, we come to you this morning asking you to uh, look upon us, to smile upon us, to shine your face upon us. For Lord, you are the good God and you are the great God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. You are the sovereign God of this universe. You created everything just by the word of your mouth. Father, as a church this morning, we, we worship you as the creator God, as the one and only God, the one true God. As Paul says, who is blessed forever. And Father, we worship you this morning because it is you who made us and not we ourselves. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Your word calls us to enter into the gates with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise and be thankful unto you and bless your name for you are good and your mercy endures forever. Father, you're so worthy of worship and, and we are not. Though we, we seek worship, we want people to worship us and to, to praise us and to bring us glory. But Lord, we are called to worship you and praise you and to bring you glory because Lord you alone are the only one to whom belongs strength and glory and, and power and wisdom. So Lord as a church this morning we, we come humbly before you worshiping you praising you singing to you playing to you uh, preaching to you reading to you in your glory. Lord, this is your house. This is the house of prayer. Lord, you belong here. This is your place. This is where your glory dwells. As we were singing earlier, a greater is one day in your course. Greater is one day in your house. Lord, it is a blessing. It is a, it is a privilege to be in your house this morning. As I'm thinking this morning, Father, there are uh, Christians in, in Afghanistan right now, as I was reading yesterday and this morning, who are being persecuted by those who hate the cause of Christ, those who, who hate the Christ in whom we serve, those who hate Christianity and everything that it stands for. Father, we pray for our Christian brothers and sisters, and we're all part of the same body. We share the same father we have a 
the same inheritance in Christ. And Lord, we, we pray for them. We grieve for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan that are being uh, shot and killed in the streets, that are being persecuted because they believe in such a great Savior. We pray, Lord, for their strength. That's what they've been asking for, praying for their strength and their, and their perseverance that they're able to withstand the persecution that they're receiving. And Lord, we pray for their persecutors, that as they're persecuting Christians and as they testify of Christ, that they may be converted and saved from their, their sins and from their rebellion and be brought to a saving faith in you. So Lord, we pray that you save their persecutors. Lord, we also pray right now for uh, those in the path of Hurricane Ida down in, in uh, lower Louisiana as the hurricane has strengthened overnight and now is a Category 4 hurricane. Lord, we're, we're praying for uh, safety, that you protect the citizens from the storm to come. Lord, we know that storms come as a consequence of the fall of man that uh, corrupted all of creation as well as as well as man. And Lord, their area has been hit by many hurricanes in the last uh, few years. So Lord, we pray that you uh, protect and provide for the residents and those relief agencies that will be down there on the ground uh, to help out uh, once it passes through uh, later on tonight and until tomorrow morning. We pray, Lord, that your grace be with them, that it be with the churches down there also, and that the church stands ready to, to love and serve uh, their neighbors uh, who will undoubtedly be in distress. Lord, here close to the home, we pray for the ministry of uh, FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, as the, the football season kicked off in earnest uh, this past Friday, that uh, you bless those men who are uh, campus huddle leaders bless their efforts to uh, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ with coaches and coaching staffs and, and with student athletes Lord that they may bear gospel fruit that souls may be saved among the athletes in this uh, tri-county area that they serve we pray for the continued leadership of my dear brother Ryan Limbaugh as he leads the Chiha Valley FCA that you strengthen him and and his wife uh, Jamie and their and their boys that they support him in his ministry efforts and my brother Justin Caudle uh, that you bless him as a huddle leader at several schools and and others also Lord who are ministering to our coaches and our students that is a good gospel work that they're doing and we pray that you bless them in it and lastly, Father, we pray for our sister churches, Anderson Bible, Grace Fellowship, Redeemer Church, Christian Fellowship, for all the brethren who are leading our churches, that you strengthen them in their work, that your spirit may be with them this morning as they uh, open up the words of Holy Scripture and preach the inerrant scriptures to their congregants. And Lord, we pray that their listeners are blessed by what they hear this morning. And that you strengthen them in their faith, persevere them in their walk with you. And here at the Living Church also, Lord, 
Father, I pray that you help me as I preach from the book of Ezra this morning, starting this new sermon series, that you may be with me, fill me with your spirit to preach your way of renewal as we go through this passage. And Lord, I pray that you send the spirit to illuminate the truths that we will hear this morning. Bless us, refresh us, renew us by the means of your word through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Man, we're in a new sermon series. Uh, for the next 10 weeks, we will be in the book of Ezra. Uh, for those who, Bible scholars, Ezra is in the Old Testament. Um, and we're going to first look at a uh, introduction, like how we got here to the book of Ezra, because context is always important. Uh, that's one of the hallmarks of, of good Bible study is context. You have to look around a book. When you're looking at a verse, you have to look at the chapter that the verse is in. Uh, we don't want to just jump into the book of Ezra without knowing how and why this book is in the scriptures and why God put it here. It is for a reason. It may seem obscure to us. Why would I want to read the book about something that I don't understand, names I don't recognize, all those things. But Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3 and 16 that all scripture is by inspiration of God and it is for our instruction so as we go through this book, I pray that as you read that the Lord uh, through the spirit uh, shows you what he is trying to teach us. And as we preach it, I pray that I'm able to do the same with the spirit's uh, help. I preached in, uh, out of Ezra back in January of 2016, January through uh, early March. Uh, so this is my second foray into the book, but since then I've learned a lot more. And, and so we'll look at some things that, uh, that I've, I've learned that will be infused into this, um, these sermons that are coming up. So, and I'm not going to be able to finish all of my outline this morning. We're going to do a part two next week. Uh, but we want to read the chapter. When, when I'm doing chapters in the Bible, I always like to read the chapter, read the word of God. That is a means of grace that God gives us. This chapter one is it's relatively short, but we want to uh, get the context of what we're going to be looking at this morning. So beginning at verse one, this is the word of the Lord. It says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, Cyrus rather, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus Cyrus, king of Persia, I'm trying to sound like a king would sound, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. 
and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, pay attention to that, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were with them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of the gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Methodath, the treasurer, and counted them to Sheshbazzar, king of Judah. This is the number of them. 30 gold plates or platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. And these Sheshbazzar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. May the word of God speak. So, first question is, <clears throat> how did we get here into this part of scripture? God in creation, when he created man, or even before that, his plan of redemption uh, had already been settled. And from the fall of man in Genesis 3 uh, to Ezra and beyond, God had a plan to redeem his people back to him. So again, how do we get here to Ezra? You have to go back to the beginning in creation. And we studied the book of Genesis in our Bible study last year. Yeah, so you all should be well versed in what took place in Genesis. We had creation, the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And then you had Adam and Eve and the fall of man in chapters 2 and 3. You had the first murder that took place in Genesis 4. And then you had Noah and the flood and God's judgment on sin in Genesis 6. And then you had the repopulation of the earth in Genesis 9. In chapter 11 of Genesis, you had the Tower of Babel. You all probably heard that story. And then along comes, comes Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, where God told Abraham that he would make of him a great nation, that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And then for the rest of Genesis, from Genesis 12 through 36, you had the patriarchs of uh, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and the 12 sons of Israel. And then, of course, the 
last quarter of Genesis uh, chapters 37 through 50 you had the story of Joseph and we know at the end of the Genesis account that uh, Israel had been taken into uh, captivity into slavery by a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and so we look in the book of Exodus you see uh, the Egyptian slavery that took place over a 400 year period and then he had the story of redemption through Moses who was the first prophet and and God led uh, Israel out of the wilderness with the hand of Moses uh, victoriously through the Red Sea and then after the Red Sea they came into the wilderness wanderings and in the wilderness you had several things that happened you had the giving of the Ten Commandments you had the promises and the covenants that you find in there and at the end of the book of Deuteronomy you had the rebellion against Moses and Aaron you had the complaining by the people that is uh, chronicle in the book of Numbers you had the different laws, the ceremonial, ethical, and moral laws, which we're going through right now in the book of uh, Leviticus. You had the ceremonies. You had the feasts. You had the holy days. You had the priests and the Levites that were established. You had the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. So as you're seeing all this take place, you're seeing God's hand of redemption unfolding. You had manna and you had water from the rock. And you had other miracles that were performed uh, by the Lord. And then you had Joshua and Caleb, the only two tribes that survived the wilderness because all the ones below, I'm sorry, above the age of 20 were killed off in the wilderness because they had uh, rebelled against God when the 12 spies went out to spy out the land. And two tribes said that we could conquer the land, and that was Joshua and Caleb, and the other 10 tribes said that they could not. So God allowed their carcasses. That's why they circled around in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation was done away with. And then you had the prophecy concerning the exile and the scattering of Israel. If you look at uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28, verses 64 through 68, you will see centuries before the exile that God had prophesied that if Israel did not obey his commandments, that they would be scattered. And if you look at the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 28, this is where all the blessings and cursings uh, came out. And, and just uh, as a side note, those refer to Israel, not to us, by the way. You know, some people use that to, to, to use that for uh, our context, but that was for Israel. That was a covenant that they made with God. So Deuteronomy 28, verses 64 through 68. And this is what will happen if you look at the very first verse of chapter 28 I'm sorry not uh, the first verse uh, but the 15th verse it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes which I command you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you and then it goes on to list them and among the curses are what we find in verse 64 it says, then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods, which neither, uh, I'm sorry, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among these nations you shall find no rest. 
nor shall the sole of your feet have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, oh, that it were evening. And at evening you shall say, oh, that it were morning. Because of the fear which terrifies your heart and because of the sight which your eyes see. So God had told his people that if they did not obey his commandments, then they would, that would happen to them. This was centuries before the exile even happened. And Israel did exactly <laughs> as God said they would do. So then you get to the book of Joshua where Israel enters into the promised land uh, under the leadership of Joshua. They cross over the Jordan River. They had Jericho's victory in Joshua 6 and then you had the sin of Achan in uh, Joshua the 7th chapter. And they had various military victories and also in the book of Joshua all the different 12 tribes received their allotted land that God had promised to their families while they were in the wilderness. So they had the allotment of the 12 uh, tribes, their promised inheritance. And the covenant with God was renewed. And then Joshua great gave his great speech in Joshua, the 24th chapter, where in one of the most famous verses in the Bible, uh, he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He told Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. But he says, as for he and his house, they will serve the Lord. And after Joshua's death, in the book of Judges, Israel failed to conquer the land. Judges 1, they failed to push out all of their enemies. And because they did not push out all their enemies, they began to intermingle with those pagans. They became a thorn in Israel's side. And so in the book of Judges, uh, chapters 3 through 16, they were ruled by corrupt judges with very few exceptions. The Bible says parenthetically that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that is what happened. In Judges 17 through 21, you see the moral failure of Israel. And then you come to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, three people remained faithful to God. This is what the book of Ruth is about. Three people remained faithful to God in the midst of the moral collapse of Israel, and that was uh, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. And Boaz was a descendant of Rahab, the prostitute. And Ruth was a Moabitess, so she was not even a Jew. But she married uh, Boaz and became the great they became the great-grandparents of King David. And you'll see that chronicle in the uh, first book of uh, Matthew. So then after the events in Ruth, you have uh, the book of Samuel, first and second Samuel, the kings, and the chronicles. The prophet Samuel was born in uh, the first few chapters of Samuel. His mother had prayed a prayer because she was barren in her womb, and God op opened up her womb and blessed her with Samuel. Samuel was the first a great prophet outside of Moses. And then Saul, who was chosen as king because 
Israel wanted a king so that they could be like the other nations around them. And God told Samuel that they're not rejecting you, Samuel, rejecting me as king over them, to rule over them, because Israel saw all these other nations, the Canaanites, the, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all those pagan nations had kings. And instead of Israel following God as king, they wanted to choose a king, so they chose Saul. Saul was tall and handsome, but Saul had failed. He failed to obey God when God told him uh, to drive out and to kill and to plunder a nation of people. And he did not do it. He spared the best of sheep. And Samuel came to Saul and confronted him. And Saul said, I, I wanted to keep some sacrifices to, to make a sacrifice to the Lord. But Samuel told him, To hearken, to obey, is better than sacrifice. That's what he told him. He said, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Because Saul had rebelled against God, God removed him from the throne and replaced him with David. And then in 1 Samuel, you have the story of David through the balance of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel. David was the Christ king. He was the prototype of the Christ king. That's why Christ is called the son of David. And God prophesied that there would never fail to be a king on David's throne. And then David had a son named Solomon. Solomon built the temple because David could not because uh, the Lord told him that he was a man of war. And because of that, he could not build the temple. So Solomon built the great temple. But Solomon in 1 Kings 11, if you read that story, Solomon had a moral failure himself. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. God had told him not to marry any of the foreign women, but he did because God warned him that when he married those women, they were going to take his heart away from him. And that is exactly what happened. God gave uh, Solomon three warnings before that. In the book of first Kings, but Solomon, as wise as he was, he ignored that from God, that warning from the Lord. So because of Saul, Solomon, rather, his moral failure, God told him that he was not going to rent the kingdom from him, take it from him while he was still alive for David's sake, for his son David's sake, rather his father David's sake. So his moral failure led to a divided kingdom now it was a few years ago i think in 2015 where i was studying through uh samuel kings and chronicles and uh, i did the painstaking task of writing down all the the kings that ruled over uh israel and judah because what happened when solomon uh died you had his his uh, assistant jeroboam who became king of israel which was the northern ten tribes and then you had the the southern two tribes which uh, became uh, Judah. So you had uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, and he had rebelled against his father. So Rehoboam became the first king of the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And Jeroboam, 
became king of Israel. This is found in 1 Kings 12. So if you read from 1 Kings 12 all the way down to the end of that book, I, I suggest if you have time, we want to do some devotional reading. That's a good book to read to see the failings of a lot of those kings. Almost all kings of Israel were evil. All of them were evil. Some of them reigned for two years. One reigned for seven days. One became king, uh, Azariah, at age 16. King over Judah, he reigned for 52 years. You had a series. Israel had a series of evil kings. And so Israel was taken into captivity first by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. They were taken into captivity. And what the Assyrians did was, as God had prophesied, as we saw in Deuteronomy 28, the Assyrians scattered all those Jews throughout that known world at that time. They're called the lost tribes of Israel because the Assyrians had literally scattered them. They dispersed them throughout the known world at that time. They were not together and, and clustered. God had punished Israel by scattering them as he had prophesied. And that northern kingdom, those in exile, never came back to Jerusalem. Now Judah, the southern kingdom, had a succession of good and evil kings. And they were exiled by the Babylonians Beginning in 586, 586 B.C. was when uh, Jerusalem fell. In other words, the Babylonians seized the city, burned the temple, destroyed the walls. It was about a four-year period uh, that the Babylonians came in and took the exiles back to Babylonia. It, was, it happened over a period of four years, but 586 B.C. was when uh, Jerusalem finally fell. And, and when they say fell, that means that the, the head of the nation. Just like uh, Kabul, the city of Kabul in Afghanistan, they say Kabul fell to the Taliban. They mean that they took over the capital. So when a city or a nation falls, that's when the capital is taken over. So Israel, I'm sorry, Judah fell when Jerusalem was seized by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So they were taken into captivity, the temple and the wall were destroyed and God sent two prophets to prophesy to Israel to come back to the Lord and that was Elijah and Elisha they were living during uh, the time that this was happening and the pattern of Israel during that time it was a cycle sin judgment and repentance sin judgment repentance wash and repeat that was their pattern so the big idea as we look at Ezra we, we, we see how do we get how do they get into exile it all started with the fall it all started with a nation who did not obey God but turned away from him and turned to worship false gods. 
And God turned them over to their rebellion. And he chastised them by sending them into exile. Now, they were in exile for a specific number of years. It was a specific number of years that God had turned them over to that. So let's look at our big idea. Let me go back to it right quick. Our big idea, we're talking about spiritual renewal this morning. God's will of spiritual renewal. It requires God's providence and God's great power. Working according to his gracious promises for his purposes. Spiritual renewal cannot happen without God, without his work, without his power, without his providence. Okay? So, Ezra is what we call uh, uh, the genre of biblical literature, a historical narrative. And this is important when you're reading this book and as it's being preached through. Uh, there are 12 books in the Protestant canon uh, of the Old Testament that are commonly known as historical books. They tell the redemptive history of Israel. The first five books are the law in the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, and uh, the Protestant Bible. The first five books are called the law. And after that, you have Joshua and Judges. You have Ruth. And in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Samuel is one book. The book of Kings is one book. And the book of Chronicles is one book. Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. And then you have the book of Esther. Those make up the uh, 12 historical books, historical narratives. And these books were not written to tell history for history's sake, but to show how God works through history. As Christians, we have to learn how to look at history through a biblical lens. It shows us how God works through history. The Bible is history. Everything that happened in Scripture is true. And we have to look at history through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of God. So, Ezra and Nehemiah, as I uh, just re uh, referred to, they're one book in the Hebrew Bible because it is a continuous story. Uh, in the book of Ezra, you have the exiles coming back to rebuild the temple to establish worship in Israel. That's what they're coming back to do. Because the temple was a center of worship for the Hebrews. And the book of Nehemiah, which we'll look at after this, uh, the wall was restored around the city to fortify the city. To keep it from being plundered again, just as it was uh, with the Babylonians. So that's, that's why they're one book in uh, the Hebrew Bible. And there are two sections to this book. Uh, chapters 1 through 6. Uh, followed the first group of exiles under uh, Zerubbabel. This was around 538 uh, B.C. And then chapters 7 through 10 uh, followed the second group of exiles that came under Ezra in approximately 457 B.C. So you had two groups of exiles that, that came uh, back. And between chapters 6 and 7 are uh, approximately 58 uh, years. And between chapter 6 and 7 are when the events in the book of Esther took place. 
So a, a, another thing I'll say parenthetically about reading historical narratives, as we read through these books and these chapters, that all the events that you see take place don't happen in real time. Okay? Just like you have that 58-year gap between chapters 6 and 7. Everything you read doesn't happen in real time. It may be a span of months between different events or a few years between different events that take place. So that's something to always remember when you're reading uh, biblical uh, historical narratives. And so the mega theme of Ezra is to affirm that God works sovereignly through responsible human agents to accomplish his redemptive goal. God does work through people. God does use people. God uses evil people to accomplish his redemptive goals. And we'll see that as we go through this book. So let's look at some principles here. The first one is that spiritual renewal requires God's great power. We see this in the very first verse of this book. If you look at the very first verse. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, what did the Lord do? He stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So that he might proclaim throughout all his kingdom. And also put it in writing. The Lord stirred up the spirit of both Cyrus and the exiles. Now I remind you that Cyrus was a pagan king. He was a pagan king. He was not uh, a believer in the people of God. Or the God of the people rather. The exiles had become comfortable in Babylon. Just think, they had been there for over 70 years. The, the older ones, the ones who were taken into captivity, had died early in the exile. And they had a younger generation to come up. Think, during that 70 years, you had children that were born. You had about two or three generations of Israelites who were in exile in Babylon. You read the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel takes place during those 70 years. Daniel and his three uh, friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were born and living in Babylon during the exile. They built families. They had homes. The men worked. The women did their jobs. The children did what they did. So they had uh, gotten comfortable in Babylon. But there were also those who were ready to go back. If you look at Psalm 126, this is about those who want to come back. A joyful return to Zion. Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. That was the nation saying that about Israel. The Lord has done great things for us. 
and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. So Psalm 126 was the exiles singing about going back to Jerusalem. There were some who wanted to come back. But there were some who were so comfortable in captivity that they stayed. And another thing we must note is that God reigns over kings. There's no head of state on this earth who is mightier than God. No head of state. Why? Because it is God who reigns over kings. God's in his sovereign power, he turns Cyrus's heart to fulfill his purpose. Cyrus did only because God has said so. The psalmist, I'm sorry, the writer in Proverbs 21 and 1 said this. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. God reigns over kings. God reigns over the rulers of this earth. That's why when we're praying for our leaders, God is not weak and impotent where he cannot change wicked men's hearts. Though he may not do it because he does not will to do it because it is his prerogative. It doesn't mean that we don't pray that God turns over the hearts of wicked leaders. God can do that. He did it with Cyrus. He did it with Pharaoh in Egypt. Although it took 10 plagues to do it and Pharaoh's heart was so hard that he still went out to Israel with their chariots and they perished in the Red Sea. But God turned the heart of Pharaoh to let those people go. God is the one who promotes and takes down kings. Psalm 75 and 6. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. It is God who does it. He is in charge. He is sovereign. So God chose Cyrus because he chose Cyrus. And the thing about it, the great thing about it is that God's sovereign power chose Cyrus 150 years before he even lived. And 150 years before he even became king of Persia. So God had sovereignly chose Cyrus to gather the faithful remnant of Israel back to the land. And we see this in Isaiah 44. Begin at verse 28, and this is what the Lord says. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure. Remember, this was said 
some 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And beginning chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointing, he's speaking of Cyrus, as his anointing, his chosen, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the balls of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who called you by your name, am God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have called you by your name. Again, he's speaking of Cyrus. I have named you Though you have not known me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. So you see God had sovereignly chosen Cyrus. Again a century and a half before he even became king of Persia. That he was going to be the one to let Israel go back. And rebuild the temple and establish worship. That goes back to the last point that it is God who reigns over king. It is God who turns the hearts of kings to do his bidding. Again we're talking about. Spiritual renewal requiring God's great power. It takes only God. To do this. Only through the Lord's great power. And enablement. Can anything be accomplished. This is something for us to. To learn with life. And everything that we do. In the vision of the lampstand. And the olive tree. In Zechariah. The fourth chapter. You all have probably heard this verse before. Not by might nor by power. But by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah had a vision of the uh, olive tree. Which was representing Israel. It says now the anger. Now rather now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me. As a man who was waking out of his sleep. And he said to me what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees by it. One at the right bowl and one at the left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Remember, Zerubbabel was, he led the first group of exiles back to Jerusalem. He's supposed to tell Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? 
before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. I mean, be, be laid flat. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. So what God was saying was that it was going to take his power to rebuild the temple, to lay the capstone for the first stones to be laid. And the menorah, the, the candle with six on each side, that was the Jewish menorah, which was a symbol of worship. And the olive tree supplied the oil, which was representation of the spirit of God to help keep those candles lit. So God was telling Zerubbabel and telling his people, this rebuilding was only going to happen by my power. It is only by God's power that rebuilding can happen. It is only by God's power that anything can be accomplished. As God asked Jeremiah, is there anything too hard for God? That's a rhetorical question where his answer is understood as no. So as the exiles are getting ready to come back, they, they're coming in the power of the Lord. They're coming knowing that God is going to be with them, that it's going to be done by his power, by his enablement. That is the only way that's going to be accomplished because as we're going to see, they're going to encounter opposition just as Nehemiah did in the rebuilding of the wall. They encountered opposition. Only by the Lord's power can spiritual renewal happen. Some people long for spiritual renewal in their lives. They're reaching a point in their life where their affections for Christ have waned, have, have waxed cold, as, as uh, Scripture says. It's, it's grown cold. And their affections for Christ have, 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 have kind of damned out that, that, that light. has dimmed their affections for Christ are not like they used to be we can't just do it we can't just restore it with pure grit and determination it's going to take God's power to renew it is God alone who does that So how does this point to Christ? Cyrus was a prefigure of Christ. Prefigure means an image beforehand. Cyrus was a prefigure of Christ. As the king set apart by God to free God's people. Okay, so Cyrus was a prefigure of Christ as the king who was set apart by God to free his people. Was he a pagan king? Yes. But he was a prefigure of Christ. David sinned greatly, but he was a foreshadowing of the Christ king. Moses was a prophet. He was a foreshadowing of Christ in one of his God's people.
people proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though Moses sinned. Moses sinned so greatly in anger against God when God told him to uh, speak to the rock so that water could come out. And Moses struck the rock and God's punishment was that he would be able to look over into the promised land, but he would not be able to enter into it. But yet he was a picture of Christ as prophet. So God can use sinners as prefigures and types of Christ because they don't perfectly fulfill that office. So Cyrus was a prefigure of Christ as the king set apart by God to free God's people. Just as Christ, who was the redeemer king, he was the Lord's servant. He would bring prisoners from the prison of sin. The Babylonian exile and the coming out of exile was a prefiguring of Christ bringing sinners out of the slavery of sin into the promised land of his great salvation. Christ was the Lord's servant. As Isaiah pointed out in Isaiah 42 verses 6 through 7. Christ came to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from prison and those who sit in darkness from the prison house. He's speaking of being set free from the prison of sin because that is man's greatest need to be uh, delivered from sin and to be redeemed from sin. So Cyrus was a prefigure of this Christ. Next principle, a spiritual renewal needs God's providence. Look at verses 9 and 10. God's providence. This is the number of them. These are the plates and everything. The platters, the silver platters, the knives, all the articles that were coming back. And Sheshbazzar took with the captives who were brought from Jerusalem, Babylon rather, to Jerusalem. How would renewal and rebuilding take place? It would be through providence. What is providence? We, we, we've, we've talked about this before. Providence is God's divine superintending of human affairs is God's divine superintending of human affairs in other words God divinely orders all of our lives that's providence I'll give you some more practical examples just here in this church think about how some of you all came to this church. It was through providence. It was providence. It wasn't luck. It wasn't good luck. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't fate. It was through sheer providence. 
I think about how, you know, how I met Bob St. John. It was when we planted our church, we partnered with, uh, when the hotel was up here on the hill, uh, Renovation Ministries, Chris Terrell, he's a, he's a pastor now, uh, but, but Chris had uh, Renovation Ministries, and we all partnered together. You know, we uh, fed families for Thanksgiving for a few years at the city meeting center. We partnered with other churches to do that, and then, uh, you know, Renovation Ministries, uh, Joey Boyd was one of the uh, preachers there, one of the uh, young men that would help lead that ministry, and Justin Caudill uh, was there, and uh, Mike Major, uh, a friend of mine, was there. And when Renovation Ministries uh, split, uh, Joey Boyd uh, went to... Uh, Redeemer Church down there in um, Oxford and Justin Carter went to ABC and Joey asked me have I heard of a man named Bob St. John and told him about the iron on iron meetings that they were having this is back in 2013 he told me to have him at ABC first Tuesday of every month you know you need to go check him out uh, I used to visit Joey at his job he and I used to work out together at Dining Body down there in Oxford and um that's how I met Bob. That was Providence. It all started with our partnership with Renovation Ministries. That's an example of how God works behind the scenes in our life to accomplish his redemptive purposes, his saving uh, purposes, the, the persevering of his people. All of you all are here through Providence. God superintendent the affairs of your life all of you all are where you're working right now every every part of our life i met my wife in college in the library we happened to be doing work study on the first floor and she was on the third floor never seen her before in my life one day i went up to the third floor i was a, a very flirtatious young man and and uh <laughs> she caught my eye and 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 i guess i caught hers and you know, three years later, we got married. It was, it was poverty because I happened to be doing work study in the library. I happened to go to school there. I went to the military. Had I done four years instead of two, I would have never met her. Think about that. It's providence. So when we think about all the things that happen, even here in this book, everything you see in Scripture, it was divine providence that brought them to this point. And they had an impossible task ahead of them of rebuilding the temple. It was a very impossible task. It couldn't be accomplished by human means because the Jews had no resources. Jerusalem had been pl uh, plundered. They wasn't going back to, to plenty. They were going back to a city that had been laid in ruins for how many years? 70 years. They had been laid in ruins. One stone laid on top of the other. The Jews had no resources in which to build, or to rebuild, rather. Only God could and would provide. That's providence. The surrounding people in Persia, look what they provided the ex uh, exiles with. Silver, gold, livestock, and offerings for their journey. Just like... Uh, the Israelites in uh, Exodus 12, when they came out of Egypt, they, the Egyptians gave them everything. They said, here, take it. 
Go, leave, get out of here. Here's some silver and gold to, to go with you. Here's some jewelry. Take it all with you. Here's some fine linen. Take that all with you. And the Persians did the same thing. That was through poverty. That was God using pagans. Those who worship false gods to provide for those who worship the one true God. Because it says in verse 6, again, all those who were around them encouraged them. These were all pagans. All those in Babylon. They encouraged them and they gave them those articles of silver and gold and all those goods and everything so that they could worship their because what man cannot do God did I think about our own church how God graciously has provided for us I was telling Emily uh, last week musician we had used that uh, transparency paper and you know paper and we put the transparency on the overhead projector and projected the lyrics to, um, to the wall and we would play the song and sing to the song. And we thought we hit the jackpot. We were like, yes, we finally got a TV. <laughs> we were like, we hit gold. And we could actually do PowerPoints for a change. <laughs> you know, we were from, from the Stone Age, you know, it, it was, it, but God graciously provided for us. It was all providence because of this relationship that I have with this man who's not even a Christian. But he likes to give and, you know, looks good on his taxes and everything. So, you know, why not? But, hey, that, that, that was okay. But God used him to upgrade us a little bit. And a church donated some chairs to us, uh, those red chairs that we had. Calvary Temple uh, Assembly of God down in Golden Springs uh, gave us our first set of padded chairs because the chairs we had before had come from Greenbrier. Speaking of Providence, uh, the pastor at that time was Brad Williams, who was one of our neighbors. Stayed a, a stone store from our house. And, and, you know, I told Brad, you know, we're planting this church. And he said, hey, man, I got some chairs. Those chairs were, they were hard. They were all different colors. But we had chairs. And we took some chairs from the house uh, to do that. And then Calvary Temple, they were getting new chairs in their uh, youth building. So uh, the pastor there, Jason Gurley, uh, who's a good friend of mine, I said, hey, Ron, you know, I got, got 50 chairs to give you all. So they gave us those, those chairs. God provided. And then these chairs came from a church plant in Georgia uh, that closed. And we gave our red chairs to our, the former church that my wife and I used to go to. God provides for his work. He always provides. Let us be encouraged by that. The great missionary, uh, Christian missionary, the late Hudson Taylor, he was the missionary to China. He opened the gospel to the Chinese people back uh, in the mid part of the uh, 20th century. He said this quote, and it always sticks with me. He said, God's work done in God's way would not lack God's means of support. God's work done in God's way will not lack God's means of support. God will always provide for his work. He's graciously proud of us since 2018 when we came back in August. 
decimated and, and discouraged and, 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 and heartbroken at, at everything that took place in our uh, treasury had been, had been drained and, and pilfered. But God provided. He always blesses his work. And he's going to bless the work of these people. How does this point to Christ? Christ provides believers with his spirit as a means of having our lives renewed through spiritual regeneration. God saves by means of his spirit. That is who regenerates us, the Holy Spirit. He gives us a new spirit. The Holy Spirit gives the believer a new life. He restores, he renews, and he revives. God always, God is in a renewing business. He's in the renovation business. There's no one who can renovate a life better than God. There's no one who can restore a life that is ravaged by sin and ravaged by Satan and who is under Satan's rule. There's no one who can do that better than God. If you're languishing spiritually, if you're, you're spiritually lethargic, you're, you're uh, in a backslidden state, Go to God. He's the one he, who renews. He's the one he renews. He's the one who restores. He's the one who can restore your joy. He is the one who restores your joy in him. When I look for joy in circumstances, we look for joy in Christ because Christ is the center of our joy. He is the center. He is the one who restores. He is the one who we have to go to to cultivate our affections for him. We go to him. We pray, Lord, cultivate my affections for you. They've waned. They've, they've, they've withering out. Their light is barely lit. Lord, restore my joy. What did the psalm say in Psalm 23, David, who was speaking of Christ, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in the green pastures. He leads me to beside the still water. He restores my soul. That's what the great shepherd does. He restores it. And that's what he's going to do to his people when they, as they come back and reestablish worship. He's going to restore the joy of those exiles who've been under Babylonian captivity. Why? Because they're going back to worship him. And that is how store our joy is restored. We're going to stop right there and continue with this next week. So let us pray. Father, thank you that it is you who restore our joy. It is you who decreed that Cyrus give the exiles permission to come back and reestablish worship of you in the holy city, the city of David, Jerusalem. Lord, it is you who turns the hearts of wicked men to do your will and your bidding for the benefit of your people, of your nation. Father, it is you who works in the hearts of your people to renew and to restore our joy. 
Father, I pray this morning that you cultivate our affections for you. And that, Father, we do the work of cultivating our affections by maintaining the ordinary means of grace, and that is uh, praying, fighting for our prayer time, fighting for our time in your word, fighting for fellowship with other believers. Father, thank you that you're so faithful that you love to restore us. You love to renew us. You love to revive us. And Father, we're praying for unbelievers who are hearing this message that by means of your spirit that you may renew their hearts through spiritual regeneration. That you may take them from being spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins to having a spiritual new life in you. Father, thank you for your way of renewal. And as we go through this week, may we meditate on what you have done in providing for us in your great providential care of us. That we may rejoice in your power to renew and to do your work in us and through us to your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.